Our scripture for today comes from Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of, your, of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Greetings to you this morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week at Pentecost, uh, we saw the, the pouring out of this long-promised Spirit of God on those early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. We saw how the Spirit empowered those believers to speak in the wonders of God and to carry out the gospel into the world. Today we're in a different book. We're in the book of Romans. We've got a, a different author, the Apostle Paul. We've got a, a very different scene than that of last week, but at the center of our scripture today, like last week, is the Holy Spirit. In the first 39 verses of chapter 8 in Romans, the Spirit, sometimes referred to just as the Spirit, sometimes as the Spirit of God, sometimes as the Spirit of Christ, is mentioned 21 times, so essentially every other verse. We, we may not talk about the Spirit very much, you know, perhaps some of us don't think about the Spirit very much, maybe we're not, you know, for honest, not exactly sure what the Spirit does. But according to the Apostle Paul, the Spirit is at the very core of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. We can't even really speak of following Jesus without speaking of the Spirit and the Spirit's role. But here's the challenge. We, tr we trust that those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've, we've received the Spirit of God, this invisible presence that, that enables us to set our minds on, on what God desires. And yet, we often feel trapped in sin. Oftentimes you'll hear someone say, or maybe you've experienced this yourself, I was baptized, I, I trust that the Spirit of God has been poured out on me and in me, and yet I was surprised at how the temptations that I struggled with before my baptism didn't go away after my baptism. Some of us, some of you here today, probably feel trapped in, in certain patterns of sin that you just can't seem to shake, no matter how hard we try. There's a dilemma here. We're, we're, as followers of Jesus, we profess through his death and resurrection that we've been freed from sin, from the wages of sin, and that Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross. And yet, when we look at our lives, it, feels, it can feel like we're engaged with a war, in a war with sin. In verses 12 and 13, Paul does uh, what we see a number of times in the Bible. He lays out two paths. So one of these paths, according to Paul, leads to death. One of these paths... On the other hand, leads to life. And there's some similarities between what Paul is saying here and what Moses uh, told the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. So after the Israelites were freed from the bondage of slavery, they were given this new life outside of slavery as they moved towards the promised land. And Deuteronomy picks up the right at the edge of the promised land. And Moses, he lays out these two options, these two paths before them. Option number one, you can choose to love the Lord your God. You can walk in obedience to him. You can keep his commands. And Moses says that path leads to life and prosperity. 
Or there's option number two, you can choose not to be obedient and bow down to other gods. That path, that path leads to destruction, to death, to separation from God. And so Paul, like Moses, he's, he's laying out these two paths for his readers. Option number one, you can choose the path of walking according to the flesh. That path leads to destruction, to death, uh, separation from God. Or there's path number two, you can put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, and you can walk according to the Spirit. And that's the path that leads to life. A couple of things I want to point out here. When Paul says flesh, he's not, he's not talking about our uh, bodily, physical flesh. So I think sometimes as Christians, we've, we've heard this language and understandably made the conclusion that Paul is not making, that, that the physical body, that material part of us, that part's bad, and the spirit, the non-material part of us, are what we often call our souls, is good. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul and the New Testament have a high view of the physical body and the physical world. Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, Paul speaks about when a man and woman uh, in marriage become one flesh, and then he gives that, uh, that union as a picture of Christ in the church. Our hope one day is that God will raise up physical bodies, flesh and bone. Uh, the problem is not that our physical bodies are bad and, and the non-material world is good. The problem is that as humans, we have this tendency to live our lives in a way that centers around ourselves. That's what Paul says, living according to the flesh. And our walk in this way is defined, is powered by these strong desires that center around ourselves and our own interests and our own pleasures and our own purposes. And that is the path, I think if we're honest, we're most naturally drawn to. That's kind of the basic default of the human. And Paul says that's the opposite of living lives that center around God, that, that, that center around serving God and pleasing God and offering ourselves to God to be used for his purposes. Last year I bought an electric car and except for a few minor things on the exterior, it basically looks the same as a car with an internal combustion engine. But if you pop the hood on that car, you're gonna see something that looks very different than a regular car. The, the sources of power, so what's propelling these two cars forward is very different. The Spirit of God is not something that we can see on the outside. But according to Paul, if we were able to somehow pop the hoods on ourselves and look at what is driving us forward, we would see one of two very different sources of power, the power of the Spirit or the power of the flesh. And depending on what source of power is driving you and me forward, we're going to end up in very different places. Second thing I want you to think about is, why would anyone in their right mind choose the path that leads to death and destruction, right? Like, I doubt, while Moses was laying out these two options, someone raised their hand and was like, hey, Moses, tell us again about the path that leads to death. Still, still kind of weighing the options here, the, the pros and cons. Same thing with Paul. Why would anyone live according to the flesh if it leads to death, when the Spirit leads to life? Well, there's this, there's this push and pull that's happening here. Uh, we may be we're pushed, like I said, there's this empowerment, the Spirit empowers us in, like an engine, but there's powerful forces at work that are trying to pull us off that path. And I think one of, the, one of the challenges we have as followers of Jesus in our culture is that our imaginations are often way too small. Our views of God tend to be quite small often, and also our views of sin and its power. So we have these imaginations that are shaped more by pop culture and cartoons and kind of cliches and hallmark 
than the Bible, which is infinitely more interesting and at times scarier than our cultural notions. We get these images of, of God, you know, maybe from our culture, this kind of old guy in heaven, kind of cranky, watching to see if we trip up, if we break the rules. And, you know, in some, some specs, respects, sin is a breaking of God's law. That's certainly part of the, the biblical understanding of sin. But as John Toast points out, when, when Paul talks about sin in Romans, he's usually talking about something very different. For example, in chapters 5 to 8, where we land here today, when Paul writes about sin, he, he doesn't ever write about sins, so plural, but sin, singular. So, so sin, according to Paul, it is a, it's a cosmic power that rules. It, in Paul's mind, sin is personified. It has these traits that we often think of as humans having. It has desires and passions. It's opportunistic. It deceives. It, it, it dwells in. It has its own law. It enslaves I mean, can you see the difference here? Do you see the difference in, in if you perceive solely uh, sin as solely as that? Like what happens when I cuss and God gets upset with me. God gets out his red pen and gives me a mark. And sin is a cosmic power that seeks to rule and dominate you. A, a powerful magnetic force that is beckoning you and calling you and, and trying to pull you in to what ultimately leads to destruction. But again, like how does sin do that? Why would anybody choose that path? Does sin say, hey, you should, you should come try uh, this path out. Come over here. This is the one that leads to death and destruction. No, sin doesn't advertise itself as death. It, it's actually quite the opposite. Sin masquerades as the path to life, to flourishing. Sin doesn't lure us with, with the promise of death and trap. It lures us with the promise of life, of something we can't live without. If you want to identify sin in your life, look at the various things beside God that are beckoning you, that are promising you life, that are demanding your attention and affections and allegiance. Paul is trying to show us just because we have chosen the path of following Jesus, we're not immune to that pull, that powerful pull of sin. And we're going to have to continually resist and overcome that pull. So how do we do that? You know, this would be where you, where I might expect Paul to give some kind of clear step-by-step -step guidance on how we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. Uh, you know, maybe don't, don't run around with the wrong crowd. Don't, don't go out after midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. Don't, don't have idle hands. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says, Paul writes, it's by the Spirit that we put to, the, the, to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So the, the, the first path, the first step in taking this path that leads to life and avoiding the path that leads to destruction is admitting that, that, that left to our own devices, we are in trouble. I think this is, the, this is something that really hit home to me this week studying this passage. We cannot do this discipleship thing, this following Jesus on our own, left to our own devices. And I was thinking, I was reminded of the first step of uh, the well-known 12 steps of the AA program. And it states, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So for, for a person who's an alcoholic, who struggles with alcohol in this program, the, the, the way to stop drinking doesn't start with get all the alcohol out of your house, don't go to bars, don't hang out with the wrong crowd, though I'm sure that those things play a role at some point. No, but the first step is an admission of powerlessness in the face of alcohol. One guy read, uh, he had worked with people in the AA program, and he commented on how often people are surprised 
when they hear about this first step. Because they come, and at first, they, they, they want to you know, find out, how do I stop drinking? And they, you know, the first step is to admit they're powerless, and they think, you know, how is that going to help me? The program uh, begins with honesty and an admission of powerlessness. Paul's, Paul's first step to walking according to the Spirit and, and not according to the flesh begins with honesty. An acknowledgement that we, when we're left to our own devices, we are powerless against this force, this cosmic force of sin. And here's the deal. It's, it's not always easy to identify what it is that's trying to lead us off the path of the Spirit and onto the path of the flesh. Because remember, sin very often masquerades itself, not in darkness, but in death, but in light and life. We need help from the Spirit to identify, to, to know kind of what, what forces are pulling at us. Let me give you uh, a personal example from my own life. This, so during the season of Lent, in this lead up to Easter, it's often a season where we're encouraged to examine ourselves. We try to identify these ways we have gotten off this path of following Jesus and we repent. Or in Paul's language, we, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. And often, you know, many Lenten seasons, I'm not sure how seriously I took this, but, but the last two seasons, I, I've had a couple powerful experiences in which I've, it seemed to me like God has revealed something to me about powers, uh, ex- that things exerting power in my life. Maybe that I, didn't, I probably didn't fully recognize. And so this last Lenten season, I became more aware that I care about what people think uh, about me and my ministry more than I think I realize. It's, it's surprising how easy in ministry it can be to start to care more about what other people think about you than, than what God thinks about you. To, to spend hours and hours and hours on a sermon and realize in the end you, you are more interested in trying to look good than pointing people to Christ. You're tempted to steal the glory that belongs only to Jesus. And I began to see by the, powers of, by the power of the Spirit both that reality inside me more clearly and also how that could be harmful to my ministry. But, but again, that is something that easily can go on masquerading as a good thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to impress people. I'm trying to lead them to Christ. And I, I don't know what, what forces are pulling at you, what misdeeds of the flesh need to be put to death in you, but I, I can almost guarantee something at you is pulling at you. And we need the power of the Spirit to unmask those powers masquerading as life. Not only because they are contrary to the path of the Spirit, the path the Spirit's leading us, but because, according to Paul in this passage, these are, these are slave drivers, essentially. You know, impressing people, however you might try to do that, it might feel good at first, but ultimately it is a slave driver. So first thing here, if we're going to avoid the way of the flesh and walk the way of the Spirit, we cannot do it on our own. We are powerless in many ways. We need an external power, the Spirit of God. And one of the most important ways the Spirit enables us to do that is by identifying sin in our lives and unmasking it as a fraud. So, you know, just naming what is tempting you is a good start. Because sin, sin always wants to remain hidden. It never wants to be brought out in the open. And, and, and this is why we're encouraged to confess to each other our sins. There's something about the confession that actually defangs it of some of its power. So just, you know, get very practical. In your prayer time this week, ask the Spirit to identify what forces are pulling at me away from this path of the Spirit that need to be put to death. Like, just start there. Don't, 
don't get overwhelmed that I'm never going to be able to get over there, but just name those or ask the Spirit to help you identify those. And if you're not engaged in regular prayer, I think this is a good reminder. We, we can't do this alone. I would challenge you, like, are you trying to do this discipleship thing on your own power, on your own wits, on your own ability? I, I recognize that temptation very well myself. But we see here that we are powerless. We need the, the, the power of the Spirit. So I would just encourage you to begin uh, regularly engaging in prayer. Verses 14 and 15. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought you about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul doesn't just show us, you know, this bleak path of sin, this path of the flesh, you know, this path that centers around ourselves and our own desires that, that eventually leads to death and destruction. That would be pretty bleak. No, he shows us another path, the path of the Spirit. And what an incredible contrast we see here. The path of the flesh makes us slaves, leads to fear, leads to destruction. The path of the Spirit makes us children of God. You know, one of the most powerful ways that the Spirit empowers us to avoid uh, the way of the flesh and to keep to the way of the Spirit is by witnessing us, to rem by reminding us who we are, reminding us of our identity. When Jesus was baptized, there's a couple things that happen. The first thing, the Spirit descends upon him. That's the first thing. So in the New Testament, water baptism uh, and baptism of the Spirit are, are, are closely connected. Not always, but at the same time. Same way, same time, but they're closely connected. So the Spirit rests on Jesus. But the second thing that, ha that happens are these words spoken to him. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You're my son. You know, that, that happens right before Jesus is driven out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by Satan. And remember, he resists. Something powerful happens to us when we give ourselves and our lives to Jesus. The Spirit de descends upon us and we are adopted into the family of God. And how does the Spirit empower us to resist the way of the flesh, the way of sin? One of the ways is by telling us, by witnessing us, by reminding us, you are a beloved child of God. You know, don't, don't underestimate the power and security of having an identity as a beloved child. Like, I'm not talking about like a warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm talking about a powerful force at work in your life. You know, think about this. It is very common for people who, growing up, did not feel beloved by their parent or parents, father or mother, and often this is subconsciously, but they spend much of their life, maybe the rest of their life, trying to please those parents, trying to seek their approval, trying to, try to feed, get that feeling of being beloved they didn't have. You know, some of, your, some of your parents might have been dead for many years now, and I wouldn't be surprised if you still hear their voice critiquing you, judging you, telling you you're, you're not living up to the standards. Like, that's more like a master-slave relationship than a parent-child. And that's what sin seeks. Sin is characterized by fear and inadequacy. That's not the signs of a healthy parent-child relationship. A healthy parent-child relationship, which is what the, the Spirit seeks, is a relationship characterized by intimacy and love. The Spirit reminds us that as children of God, we get to call God Abba, Papa. 
The Spirit reminds us that's the kind of relationship you have with your Creator. You know, the addressing of God as Abba, this is the Aramaic word for Father, it's not about assigning gender to God. We, we profess that God is beyond gender. The point is that we can address God, speak to God in the most intimate way. I was having lunch with someone last week, and I was telling them how I am so thankful my kids um, have Christiana, their mom, in their lives. For multiple reasons, but the one I was explaining was, you know, almost instinctually, when my kids come and complain about something to me, my, what I say is, suck it up, <laughs> get over it. Like, discomfort and challenge are they're good for you. And sometimes that's exactly what my kids need. But I've missed at times what, what it is they need at other times. Because what they don't need that. They need a parent who, can, who they can come and cry out to mama. Someone who will stroke their head and, and listen to their cries. The Spirit witnesses to us that we have this, this heavenly parent to whom we can cry out and who hears us because we are children of God. A parent who, who holds together perfectly that which earthly parents struggle to do. Who knows that there are times when we need to be called to courage and strength and to walk the path of the Spirit, to take up our crosses, to walk the path that leads through the shadow of death. We also need a parent who leads us beside quiet waters and restores our souls. We are beloved children of God, and that is so important for us if we're going to resist the ways of the flesh, the way of sin, to get that into us, drive that deep within us. But notice what Paul says here. We are not just children of God. We are, through the Spirit, made children through adoption. And this term adoption to sonship is a term, uh, it refers to this full legal standing of an adopted heir in Roman culture. Roman society placed a high value on offspring and heirs, and if a couple was childless, they were often eager to adopt. And when they did that, that adopted child took on the same legal status and inheritance as a biological child. And so Paul's saying, you know, male or female, it's not just sons. Male or female, you have been adopted into this family through the Spirit. Now let's think about why is this metaphor of adoption so powerful? Let me tell you a couple of story here. When we found out, Krishan and I found out that she was pregnant with uh, both Neva, our oldest, and Isaac, our youngest, we were very surprised, almost, you know, shocked, definitely in the last one when we found out. But with Neva, you know, Christ, it was Krishana got pregnant much faster than we had planned. And, but we knew he wanted to have kids, so this, you know, we just happened sooner than we thought. It didn't take long before we got really excited. But Isaac, our fourth, was a very different story. When Krishana found out she was pregnant with Isaac, not only was it a surprise, it was, not, it was exactly what we were not seeking. Especially for Krishana, who, who was by that point uh, going to carry a child close to the age of 40, um, was already struggling and tired with, you know, taking care of three kids in the house, three young kids. And even though now, three, almost four years later, we adore Isaac. We can't imagine our family life without him. He just brings an incredible amount of joy to our lives. It doesn't change the fact that we were not tr trying to have him. But adoption's different. I don't know of anyone who has an accidental adoption. I also don't know anyone who seeks to adopt a child because it's easy. Adopting a child requires a, a huge amount of resources and energy and expenses and time and patience. It also, and, we, and we've, we 
We've witnessed this firsthand in our congregation. It is a process that can lead to massive heartbreak and disappointment and pain. And yet, couples who have decided to adopt will spare no expense, no amount of effort in pursuit of bringing a child into their family. Couples will experience an incredible amount of pain on that journey and still not give up that pursuit of a child. Do you see why adoption is such a powerful metaphor here? It's, it's way more I mean, powerful than biological because God will stop in nothing to make us his children. God is in relentless pursuit of us, like those parents who are in relentless pursuit of bringing a child into their family. God will spare no expense to make us his children, to bring us into his family, not even his son. Last week I was walking over back from Ace Hardware, which is near my house on Main Street in Columbiana with uh, my kids. Uh, if you know that stretch, it's a busy road. It's, it's a little hard to see when cars are coming because of some trees. And so I often take Isaac over when I go to the hardware store and I you know, often worry about him crossing it. So we're coming back the other day and, uh, and we start to cross and we're waiting for this, I think it's a truck to go past in the other lane. And I see Isaac out of the corner of my eye. And he's not, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to, but I imagine for a second him lunging forward, which could easily happen. And in this split second, my parental instincts kick in, and, and in just this second, I play out a whole scenario in my head if that were to happen, what I would do. And I realize I would lunge forward, and I would grab him, and I would cradle him in my arms so that when the truck hit us, hopefully I could absorb that blow and protect his little body. You know, obviously that, that didn't happen. But if it did, do you think Isaac would ever question my love for him? Even if Isaac learned that his parents never intentionally sought to have him, do you think he would ever doubt the love? God is the parent who will stop at nothing to bring us into his family, who seeks us out with the intentionality of an adoptive parent and who will spare no expense to bring that child into the family. And who, through his son Jesus, with the, when the powers of sin and darkness and death came hurtling towards us, lunged out, wrapped us in his arm, held on tightly, and absorbed the blow on the cross. How does the Spirit empower us to walk in the path that leads to life? The Spirit reminds us, witnesses us, that you are a beloved child of God, a child who was brought into this family at incredible cost. A child who now not only shares the intimacy of a parent-child relationship, but the benefits. Paul writes, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let that sink deep into you. As you pray this week, ask the Spirit to, 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 to unmask the powers that are pulling you away. But make sure you ask the Spirit to drive that deeper in you. Let that reality pierce your heart to overwhelm you and to empower you as you walk in the Spirit.